I'm going to speak this morning on shadows in the garden, continuing in our series on the gospel of Adam. But before we get into that, I'm going to read to you a very short portion of C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle. I'm not a professional reader. Then they all went forward together, always westward, for that seemed to be the direction Aslan had meant when, they, when he cried out further up and further in. Many other creatures were slowly moving the same way, but that grassy country was very wide, and there was no crowding. It still seemed to be early, and the morning freshness was in the air. They kept on stopping to look round and to look behind them, partly because it was so beautiful, but partly also because there was something about it which they could not understand. Peter, said Lucy, where is this, do you suppose? I don't know, said the High King. It reminds me of somewhere, but I can't give it a name. Could it be somewhere? We once stayed for a holiday when we were very, very small. It would have been, it would have had to have been a jolly good holiday. Said Eustace, I bet there isn't a country like this anywhere in our world. Look at the colors. You couldn't get a blue like that blue on those mountains in our world. Is it not Aslan's country, said Tyrion? Not like Aslan's country on top of that mountain beyond the eastern end of the world, said Jill. I've been there. If you ask me, said Edmund, it's like somewhere in the Narnian world. Look at those mountains ahead and the big ice mountains beyond them. Surely they're rather like the mountains we used to see from Narnia, the ones up westward beyond the waterfall. Yes, so they are, said Peter. Only these are bigger. I don't think those ones are so very like anything in Narnia, said Lucy. But look there, she pointed southward to their left. And everyone stopped and turned to look. Those hills, said Lucy, the nice woody ones and the blue ones behind, aren't they very like the southern border of Narnia? Like, cried Edmund, after a moment's silence. Why, they're exactly like. Look, there's Mount Pyre with its forked head, and there's the pass into Arkenland and everything. And yet they're not like, said Lucy. They're different. They have more colors on them, and they look further away than I remembered, and they're more, more, oh, I don't know, more like the real thing said the Lord Diggory softly. Suddenly, Farsight the eagle spread his wings, soared 30 or 40 feet up into the air, circled round, and then alighted on the ground. Kings and queens, he cried, we have all been blind. We are only beginning to see where we are. From up there I have seen it all. Ensmuir, Beaver's Dam, the Great River, and Caerparavel shining on the edge of the Eastern Sea. Narnia is not dead. This is Narnia. But how can it be, said Peter, for Aslan told us, older ones, that we would never return to Narnia, and here we are. Yes, said Eustace, and we saw it all destroyed and the sun put out. And it's all so different, said Lucy. The eagle is right, said the Lord Diggory. Listen, Peter, when Aslan said you could never go back to Narnia, he meant the Narnia you were thinking of. But that was not the real Narnia. That had a beginning and an end. It was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, which has always been here and always will be here, just as our own world, England, and all is only a shadow or copy of something in Aslan's real world. You need not mourn over Narnia, Lucy. Lucy. All of the old Narnia that mattered, all the dear creatures have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. And of course it is different, as different as a real thing is from a shadow, or as walking life is from a dream. Dropping down a few pages here. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed and then cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life. 
though I never knew it till now, the reason why we love the old Narnia is that sometimes it looked a little like this. Come further up, come further in. Today we're going to look at the Garden of Eden, or as we'll see in a moment, the Garden in Eden. And we're going to talk about these shadows that we see. And we're also going to talk a little bit about work. Reading in Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed round the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for this beautiful place that we can gather together, that we can fellowship together, that we can worship together, uh, and enjoy some good food. I just ask that you would bless our time today. In Jesus' name, amen. So Genesis 2 is giving us a little bit more detail into the act of God's creation, specifically man and woman and the garden in Eden. Here we see how God created man. First, he gathered the dust from the ground, he formed the man's body, and then he breathed the breath of life into the man. Body and soul united, both parts forming the whole of who man is. Both body and soul are intrinsically valuable. Who you are as a person is both your body and your soul. God then planted a garden in Eden. In that garden, he planted every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. This word Eden is taken to mean pleasure or desire. It was ready-made with everything that Adam and Eve would need. 
God also planted in the midst of the garden the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the tree of life. I want you to note as we go through this that verse 8 does not say the garden of Eden, as we're mostly accustomed to saying. It is the garden in Eden. This means that the garden was a subsection of the land of Eden. We see that a river flowed out of Eden, it watered the garden, and then that river split into four rivers. Man was created outside the garden, and he was brought into the garden to work and keep it. So there was a purpose in Adam and Eve being in the garden. This garden was planned and planted by God. It was full of provision. It was full of nourishment. It was beautiful. It was fertile, and it was fruitful. It was a place of innocence, and it was host to the very first marriage. It's fitting that today we're in a wedding barn. Adam was given the command to work and to keep the garden and to care for the animals that God had brought to him in the garden. This work, as seen in chapter 1, was to be fruitful, to multiply, to subdue the earth, and to have dominion over every living thing in the seas, the air, and on the land. He was to image God's reign and rule on the earth. And for more information on that, just check out Mike's message from last week. The garden then could be seen to represent both a tabernacle and a palace. This tabernacle was the place where Adam and Eve would meet with God. And through their work, they would worship him. They would commune with him as he would walk through the garden. It was a palace. It was the place where Adam's rule and dominion would take place. So, in a way, Adam served as a priest and as a king. Though, as we'll see in the very next chapter, though we don't know exactly how long it was in between chapter 2 and chapter 3, this all comes crashing down very quickly. Could have been a week, could have been a couple days. We don't know. As we stand back a bit, we see that chapters 1 and 2 Uh, have a major theme to them, and that theme is work. We see that God works, he creates, and then he rests. God sends man into the garden to work. We see work in the language used here in chapter 2. God formed man from the dust. God planted a garden. He got his hands dirty, so to speak. He worked, and he created the physical world that we have around us. And God is not just merely in contact with the physical world. We see in the incarnation of Jesus, the Son of God taking on flesh. He gets right into the middle of it all. He physically dies and is resurrected in a physical body, and that his physical body right now, because of the ascension, is in heaven right now. In the resurrection, our bodies will be resurrected and glorified. So all of this shows us just something about the realness, the the tangibleness of it all, the physicality of this. And it highlights work in a unique way. It gives us a little framework or a theology of work. God dignifies work. You know, let's think specifically of things like vocation or the, the things that we physically do. God dignifies that. It's a good thing. He doesn't belittle vocations. He elevates them. And we can see them as a way that we worship God.
So ordinary life, we often think of it as the mundane. We think of it as just kind of going through the motions. I've got my Monday through Friday, my nine to five. But ordinary life is actually a very beautiful thing. And God, he, he doesn't belittle that. Work is good. Work can be understood to be, as Tim Keller describes it, rearranging the raw material of a particular domain for the flourishing of everyone. Say that again. It's rearranging the raw material of a particular domain for the flourishing of everyone. It is taking the resources that are provided and rearranging them in such a way that it benefits and serves others. Another way to describe it is that work is the gracious expression of creative energy in the service of others. We can see that right here this morning. If you look around, you look at the lights, they're absolutely stunning. The, the, what are these things? Candelabras? I don't, anybody have a word for what these are? There we go. Chandeliers. (laughs) English is my fourth language. But it's absolutely beautiful. This is a Wells Barn. You can go online. Chanel will send you a link if you would like and find out a little bit of history of the Wells Barns. Uh, But they are absolutely stunning. And this one was constructed in 1896. Cain and Christina took the resources that they had, their time, their money, the stuff that was all here and more, and they rearranged it in such a way to serve others. And it's absolutely stunning. Gardening, speaking on theme with what we're looking at in this scripture, is the work in sight in Genesis 2. It's, it's the rearranging of dirt, seed, water, sunlight to bring about life, sustenance, pleasure for others. And yourself, of course, too. But now because of sin, it involves the removal and clearing of weeds, rocks, pests, It involves sweat. Based on this text, I believe that an assumption that we can make is that work and the ordinariness of life will continue in the new heavens and new earth when Jesus returns and when he reigns. Because the calling of work here was given before the fall. It was given to Adam and Eve in the garden. This was the calling of humanity when Christ returns and all the wrongs are righted and all that is uh, sad in the world becomes untrue. We will return to reigning and ruling with Christ. We will return to fully imaging God. Some passages, uh, just a couple from the New Testament. 2 Timothy 2 uh, 11, this saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him, we also will live with him. If we endure, we also will reign with him. And 1 Corinthians 6 tells us that the work of reigning with Christ will include judging the angels. I don't know what that fully means. But our work in the age to come may look very similar to the work that we do now. It will also look like the work that we see before the fall. No more sweat, no more you know, thorns and thistles and all that stuff. It will also be far more expansive than any of us can even imagine. Judging angels. The burden of work introduced in the fall will be removed. Now, I think it's safe to say we'll have vocations such as farmers, manual laborers, builders, and more. The arts, I believe, will have that in its full splendor. I do think I'll need to look for a new vocation, and so will some of you in the medical field. There won't be a need for pastors or doctors. 
We'll just find something else to do. It'll be wonderful. How does this help us in our work now? Well, some of this will come into picture in what we'll look at next week. I don't know exactly what Mike will touch on, but obviously the fall comes into place. And because of sin, our work is now burdened with thorns as a direct curse of sin. Everything is decaying and dying. This curse of sin brought about by Adam's fall is eating up everything, socially, culturally, spiritually, and yes, vocationally. Even our work is corrupted by sin's curse. Even as believers, we likely have struggled or are struggling with work and its place in our life. Perhaps you know what it is to try to prove yourself through your work. Perhaps you know what it is to be addicted to it, attempting to find your worth and your value in your work. And this happens when work is viewed as the way to get status or value, to get ahead in life. Perhaps you've developed an aversion to work. It's difficult, and so you avoid it. Work now is indeed laborious, it is frustrating, and it is difficult. You may not want to invite me to give an employment recruiting speech based on that. But we work, and in our vocations, we work for rest. We're all familiar with this concept. If I asked any of you who have jobs what, um, how many days of PTO or how many days of vacation you have, you could give me the exact number right now, right? Or perhaps the exact number you don't have. This is the system of work that exists. This is what we deal with in the world. This is how employment works. You work to earn your rest. But the Bible has it the other way around for us who are in the New Covenant. Now, what we see here in the passage Uh, it's interesting to note, and it's important for us to note, that in the Old Covenant, rest came after work. God worked, and on the seventh day, he rested. Later, in the, um, the, the announcing of the law, God commands his people to keep the Sabbath. They were literally commanded to rest. But it still was at the end. It was at the end of their work. They worked towards rest. But the principle of rest was there. In God's rest, he set before Adam something to look forward to when he finished his work. But the problem is, in chapter 3, sin enters the world, and so Adam and all of those, us, who are in Adam, are born without that rest. Fast-forwarding to the new covenant, Jesus comes as the second Adam. He lived the life that we couldn't live. And yes, that included working. Jesus was a carpenter. He worked perfectly. He went to the cross and he brought about the redemption and the forgiveness of sin for those who would believe in his death and resurrection. As we recently saw in Hebrews, his once and for all sacrifice was perfect and he now sits at the right hand of his father. Hebrews 4 extends his rest, the rest that Jesus received, to those who believe. Hebrews 4, 3, for we who have been blessed enter that rest. I'm sorry, for those who have believed enter that rest. It's blessed too. Hebrews 4, 9, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So let us therefore strive to enter that rest. So those who believe enter God's rest. There's a phrase in scripture, the fight of faith. And the fight of faith is to continue to rest in what Christ has done. It's not a fight to like 
somehow battled the devil or something like that. No, it's us making every effort to remain resting in Christ, to remain believing in Christ. Why is it a fight? Why is it an effort? Because everything the world and our flesh wants fights against it. The accusations of the enemy come in and tell you to do other, anything other than rest. And so the fight of faith is to rest in what Christ has done, believing that it was enough, believing that from him I have everything that I need, total forgiveness, total cleanliness, total closeness to God, despite what the enemy in the flesh says. This work of Christ, as I spoke about a couple weeks ago, brought about peace with God. It brought a peace that is not merely the absence of conflict. It is wholeness and harmony with God. The union of two formally opposing forces. Before we were born again, we were at war with God. We were at enmity with God. Jesus took that all away. Jesus won the peace that we have, or as the Hebrew says, shalom. So again, how does this help us with our work? Well, work can wear us out. But the reality is that there is a work that wears us out that is actually below the surface of the work we often think of. The work of proving ourselves, the work of finding ourselves, searching for that value and worth. And when you know that all of that has been taken care of by Jesus, it actually liberates you to do the surface work from a place of freedom. You can do your nine-to-five job. You can care for your family. You can uh, serve in your church. You can serve each other in ways that is not bound by the need to prove yourself that you once had. You no longer have to prove yourself. You no longer have to find yourself or seek value or worth because the gospel uniquely answers all those things. You find in Christ and in the new covenant that God loves you far more deeply than you could have ever imagined. You find that your life matters more than you previously knew. Knowing that your worth and value are fixed in Christ and that his love for you is unshakable, you can rest. Knowing that your position in Christ and your eternal future is rock solid, you can rest. Knowing that your name is engraved on God's hand, you can rest knowing that the sovereign God of the universe is approachable and beckons you to come before his throne of grace, you can rest. And so that rest now now allows you to work, not chasing after any of those other things. But the reality is we drift. And we do struggle with these things. Brothers and sisters, anchor yourself in the gospel. Remind yourself that you are loved and known by God and that Jesus' work on the cross was enough. This is liberating. And so from that place of freedom, be free. Live in that freedom. Be free to work. Again, work is the gracious expression of creative energy in the service of others. So grace can fuel your work. In order to get here, we had to have fuel, very expensive fuel, in our cars to get here. Grace fuels your work. But grace is also the whole engine to work. When you're tempted to be a workaholic, remember that work cannot supply anything for you or to you that Christ has not already given freely. When you're tempted to find your identity or your value in your work, remember that you, the believer, are united with Christ in his death and his resurrection, and so you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. You are his. He has called you his own. He's called you his beloved. You don't need to find your identity or value in work. 
when you find yourself looking for a change in your work, a new job, you can trust that God will lead you where he wants you to go. He will open the right door at the right time. And you can rest that he loves you and and has a plan for you. He'll guide you. He'll open doors for you. And know that there's no vocation out there that is, you know, less than others. God is calling you where you are to be to be a light for Christ. And so there isn't a higher elevated work and a lower elevated work or whatever, not elevated work. God has called you to where you are to go. And so you can be a minister in that place. You can be a light in that place. When you're tempted to avoid work because it's not just enjoyable, remember that the grace you need to continue to work is provided to you each and every day in Christ. There will be times that work is frustrating. There will be times when work is painful and just flat-out terrible. We all have those days. But God has given you everything you need from his vast riches in heaven so that you can work diligently and unto him. And let tomorrow's worries worry about themselves. Take it a day at a time. You have what you need for today. When you're tempted to not put in quality work, when maybe the temptation is to slack, know that God's grace will enable you to flee from that. His grace will equip you to be an honest worker, a worker of integrity. When you're disappointed by the seemingly endless amount of work and the lack of progress you see, I want to specifically maybe mention this in regards to moms. I mean, I see that on a daily instance with Chanel. There are days when the work just seems too much. It's endless. You've got laundry. You've got husbands that need to be cared for. You've got dishes to do. And just wait four or five minutes, it'll repeat. Endless mess. Endless things to take care of. God is with you. God is with you in that. Know that your value is not found in the tidiness of your home. It's not found in what other people might expect of your home or whether you get the laundry done when you wanted to. You are known and loved by God. Not for the amount of work you accomplish, but simply because he loves you. And so sometimes it really is okay to put that laundry off till tomorrow. Wrapping this up, I want to quickly just show some ways we see the gospel or these shadows and types, these echoes of the gospel in the garden. Eden and the new earth. Life began with paradise and it will end with the new heavens and the new earth. God will restore this world to not just its intended place, but somehow even more beautiful. And this is where I'm tying it right back to that book that I read at the beginning. You thought I'd forgotten. We'll experience creation more like the real thing as Lord Diggory said in that section of the last battle that I read from. All of this will feel like home, but it will be so much more beautiful and wonderful than we could dream of. The gardens. God placed Adam in a garden. Though this would be where the fall would happen, it was indeed a special place. But there was another garden where the night before his crucifixion, Jesus would commune with the Father. He would begin to drink the cup before him to redeem man from the curse that fell in the first garden. So where the first Adam failed, the second would not. There was rest in the first garden for Adam. 
in Christ, the second Adam, there is rest for the believer. The rest that we have is offered as a free gift, whereas the first Adam had to labor for it. Those in the second Adam receive it freely by faith. And it's our starting place. Work. There was work for mankind to do in the garden. And in Christ, the ultimate work of salvation is done. On day seven, God stepped back and said the work was finished. On the cross, Jesus said it was finished. This, the work of our salvation, was done. And in the doneness of that work, we find rest. There is work to do, but we do this work from a place of rest. And I'm not dealing in great detail with marriage. I apologize, but there was only so much I could cover in what I hope has been a shorter message than normal. Uh, But we also see marriage. Adam and Eve are united in marriage in the garden. Adam, when he first sees Eve, he bursts out in poetry. The first instance of a poem is when Adam sees his wife. God unites Adam and Eve as one flesh. And in Revelation, we're told of another wedding. Again, it's fitting that we're in a wedding barn. We're told of the wedding feast of the Lamb. When Jesus, the groom, will be wed to his church, the bride, and we will feast. God created a garden in Eden for mankind. The fall wreaked havoc on this. But God's purposes are not thwarted. And one day we will be united with our groom. We will live in the new heavens and the new earth. And everything spoiled by sin will be undone. We will reign and rule with Christ for all of eternity. And that hope can be yours if you believe in what Jesus did, his death and resurrection. Amen? As we've talked about work, one last thing I want to mention is that today is really a day of rest and enjoyment together. And so don't feel in any way constrained that we have to constantly be working. Just enjoy today. Just enjoy fellowship. Just enjoy time together. And that is worship. That is celebration. That is celebrating the gospel that we've received.